is Tyler, and welcome to another episode of Context for Kids, where I teach you guys stuff most adults don't even know. If this is your first time hearing, or if you've missed anything, you can find all the episodes archived at contextforkids.podbean.com, which has them downloadable, or at contextforkids.com, where I have transcripts for readers, or on my Context for Kids YouTube channel. Parents All Scripture this week comes from the MTV, the Miss Tyler version, which is the Christian Standard Bible, modified a bit to make it easier for kids to understand the content and the context. Okay, so we're finally starting chapter 14 of Genesis. And this is sure one oddball chapter because it starts with nine kings whom we have never heard of before, and eight of them we will never hear from again. And the action of the first half of Genesis 14 revolves totally around them. And this war they're having, but who are they? Where are they from? And why are they even fighting? If you've gone through my Covenants curriculum, this will be totally review for you. But if you haven't, you're about to get an important lesson on something that will be very important throughout the entire Bible. And especially beginning in Exodus 19 and 20. Understanding what's going on with these nine violent kings is going to give us an idea of how we relate to God in his kingdom and how much better God is than all these kings who are creating a huge mess in the land of Canaan where Abram and Sarai and their friends all live. So this week we'll be talking about ancient Near Eastern politics, covenants, and warfare. But first let's read this week's verses so that you can have an idea of what I am blabbing about. In those days, when Abram was living near Hebron and Lot had moved to Sodom, King Amraphel of Shinar, King Arioch of Elisar, King Keterleomer of Elam, and King Tidal of Goyim went to war against King Barah of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Admah, and King Shemeber of Zeboim, as well as the king of Bela, which is now known as Zor. These five kings all came as allies to the Sedim Valley, which is now known as the Dead Sea. They were subject to Chedorlaomer for 12 years. But in the 13th year, they rebelled against him. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtarot, Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shaveh, Kiriataim, and the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran by the wilderness. Then they came back to invade En Mishpat, which is now known as Kadesh, and they defeated the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, also known as Zor, went out and lined up for battle in the Sedim Valley against King Chedorlaomer of Elam, King Tidal of Goyim, King Amraphel of Shinar, and King Arioch of Elisar. Four kings against five kings. Now the Sedim Valley contained many asphalt pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah ran away, some fell into the pits, but the rest ran to the mountains. 
The four kings took everything from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and even all their food and kept on going. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and everything Lot had because he was living in Sodom, and they kept on going. Lot's in huge trouble because he looked with his eyes, this was in chapter 13, and took what he thought looked best and ended up living outside a very wicked city. A worse city than we can possibly imagine. But it evidently didn't take him very long to decide to move into the city instead. But we aren't going to talk about Lot this week because to understand what's going on here, we have to look at archaeology and something called a suzerain vassal covenant. And that's just a huge and fancy name that simply means that a whole bunch of little kings are being controlled by one bigger king. Kinda. That's a good starting place to think about this anyway. In the ancient world, most of the people whom we would call kings are actually more like city leaders or chiefs of tribes of people and not like modern kings and queens at all. They weren't living in huge palaces, but they were the leaders of a large enough group of people that they would have a lot more money than everyone else and probably more than one wife because that's one of the ways that men showed off how powerful they were back then and how they made friends with other cities by marrying the daughter of their king. And because they were in charge, they got to boss everyone around, and they could even kill anyone they wanted to kill if they had enough people backing them up and protecting them. But then you would have leaders of even bigger cities who had more money and more wives and more soldiers than the smaller kings. And what do you think the bigger kings did with their soldiers? There were no laws telling them to stay in their own city, and they certainly didn't see anything wrong with having more stuff as well as more people to make into slaves so they can have even more stuff. Well, they would take their soldiers and they would go to a smaller city and bully them and fight with them until the smaller king surrendered and agreed to serve the bigger king and to give him money and stuff every year. We call that protection money nowadays. When you're paying someone, you know, not to beat you up. Back in the days of Abram, when smaller kings agreed to pay and obey bigger kings, they would make a covenant between them to seal the deal. And we've talked a little bit about covenants in the past because God made one with the whole world after the flood. But this one is very different. I guess I should begin the story by talking about the kings here in chapter 14. The big king, whose name was Chedola Elmer, came from a place called Elam. And Elam is where Queen Esther would live over a thousand years later, very far from the land of Canaan in modern-day Iran. And he must have been a very powerful king because there were eight other small kings who were all paying him not to beat them up. And if you look at where the kings all lived, it was in the big cities that led from Chedorlaomer's home in Elam all the way to what would become the Dead Sea on the border of the land of Canaan. He ruled over the kings of what would later become Babylon and Assyria, which were close to him, and other places that would take him months of traveling to get to. Remember, they had no cars or airplanes, and they couldn't walk in a straight line from here to there or they'd die. 
They had to follow the Tigris and Euphrates rivers from the Persian Gulf northwest until they could travel south into what would someday be the land of Israel. And that was no easy trip. And I'm betting that those five kings who lived around the Valley of Sidim knew exactly how far away they were. And so they figured they could get away with not doing what Cheddar Leomer said anymore. But you know, that's a big, long name, and I'm getting sick of saying it. And since the beginning sounds like Cheddar, let's just call him the Big Cheese. So at one point, the Big Cheese or his father must have rolled through there with his soldiers and busted them up real bad. Because they'd agreed to serve his kingdom. But what does that mean? What did serving the Big Cheese mean? Well, they would have written a treaty on clay tablets, where the Big Cheese promised not to attack them anymore and would even protect them if someone else came after them. In return, if the Big Cheese needed help in a war, those smaller kings had to come with all their men to help him out. Plus, they had to pay him every single year. What a city would pay to the Big Cheese all depended on what they had to give. Sometimes it was food, or gold or silver or other metals, or sheep, goats, cows, fabric, paper, dyes, jewels, or even people. But what the five kings of the Sedim Valley had to pay with was very valuable their cities were involved in asphalt mining. Asphalt is probably what the roads in your town are made of, and even the Babylonians would someday make their roads out of it, but at this point in history, it was mostly valuable for making buildings. You see, in Elam, where the Big Cheese lived, and Shinar as well, they didn't have rocks for building like they had in the land of Canaan. They had to make bricks. And if you look very close at a brick building or a wall, you'll see that bricks need to be glued together or they'll just fall over once they're stacked up high enough. That's what they use the sticky, gooey asphalt for, and that's why so many buildings from three and 4,000 years ago haven't fallen down yet. Asphalt was very valuable stuff, and it was why the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela were very rich. And it's probably why the Big Cheese went after their cities in the first place, even though they were so far away. He wanted them to send him free asphalt every year for the things he wanted to build. And so at some point, they had agreed to give him a certain amount of it every year. And they did that for 12 years, but then they figured out that it wasn't such a good deal for them. The Big Cheese was way too far away to help them out if somebody decided to attack them, and so they're getting nothing out of this deal, and instead they had to give away what they had worked very hard to get. They could be selling it and getting richer, but instead they were giving it away and probably had nothing to show for it. So after 12 years of paying him not to beat them up, they stopped paying. All five of them. But that still left four kings that they had to deal with. Would they really travel all that way just to get them to keep paying? That was the question the five kings had to be asking, and that was the big risk they were taking. Well, 
the big cheese wasn't going to put up with those five small kings disrespecting him in front of the other kings. And so he told those loyal kings to get their stuff together and that they were going to go to war against the five kings who had broken the covenant agreement they'd made. If the big cheese just let them get away with it, guess what? The other three kings that had been so loyal to him would figure they could just refuse to pay him anything too. So off they went into the land of Canaan to go to war with the five small kings. The question is whether or not the four kings had enough men and weapons to defeat the five kings, and the answer is yes. Yes, they did. People had been living in Elam and Shinar for a whole lot longer than people had been living in Canaan. The cities were bigger, there was more food, they had better technology, you know, meaning better weapons and buildings and farming equipment and ways to travel and all that stuff. In fact, the armies of the four kings were so strong that not only would they end up winning and taking everything from the five cities, including all the people in them, but they also fought against everyone along the way there and won against them as well. I mean, even the people described as giants in the other books of the Bible. These were tough dudes, and they wanted everyone to know not to mess with the big cheese and his buddies. After all, a covenant is a covenant, and when you agree to serve and obey and help someone forever, you're supposed to do that. Except with kings and countries and cities, it never works that way forever. At some point, someone's going to decide that they are sick and tired of doing it, and they will break the covenant. Sometimes it works out okay, and sometimes it doesn't. This time, it doesn't. They're going to get the snot beaten out of them. But what would this covenant have looked like 14 years earlier? Well, the big cheese would have brought his armies over to where he knew that valuable asphalt was, and they would be given a choice. Either agree to pay and serve, or be wiped off the face of the earth and, you know, go take your asphalt anyway. Now, the king of the city would also be given a choice. If you pay and serve the big cheese forever, you can keep being the king. And you can even become the king's friend and he'll help you if you're ever in trouble. Or the big cheese will find someone else to be king instead and kill you. And that would have happened to all five cities in the Sedim Valley who were mining asphalt. Although some of them probably surrendered right away. When they agreed to be little kings serving the big cheese, they would have had a ceremony that would have involved killing a bull or a sheep or a goat, and they would have shared a meal together, and they would have made two special clay tablets with the agreement on it. The big cheese would keep one, and the little kings would keep the other ones. And they would store each tablet in the temple of their city god, who was, you know, supposed to punish them if they went back on their agreement. So when the five kings got together and said, look, we are so totally sick of paying the big cheese all his money every single year, if we stop paying, then we could get bigger armies. And if we all joined together... He won't be able to beat us this time. And they probably went into their city temples and got the tablets and broke them, and then they probably had a big party to celebrate. 
you know, paid for by big asphalt. And they got away with it for a whole year. Because it probably took the big cheese a long time to figure out that they weren't paying and that trip couldn't just be made any time of year. It was dangerous to make such a long trip in the winter when there was heavy rain and flooding. So they would have set out in the spring when it was dry and it took them months to get there. But they didn't attack all those cities right away. They made trouble in a lot of other places first. But why did they do that if they were only angry at the Five Kings? First of all, armies need food. And it wasn't like they could bring a ton of it with them. So they would attack on the way there and on the way back to feed their armies and also just to take any good stuff they found as well. Soldiers didn't get paid very much. But in most armies, they were allowed to keep a lot of what they took during a fight. It was a terrible time to be alive, for sure. It's hard for us to understand how so much of the world has changed because of what Jesus did for us. Before God spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, there were really no or almost no rules for war at all. God told the Israelites that there were many things that they just were not allowed to do if they went to war even though the people around them all did those things. God's people always have to be different than the world. We always have to be better and kinder and more generous than the world around us. Now, unlike the big cheese, our king, our God, isn't a bully, and so no one who follows him should be a bully either. In fact, one of the things that God says he hates all through the Bible is when the big and powerful, you know, like the big cheese and the kings who are with him, pick on the weak and vulnerable, like the people they attacked on their way to fight the five little kings. And we know from Genesis 13 that the five kings were wicked too, and so were their cities. That's why it was bad for Lot to live there. In fact, the Bible gave the five kings funny made up names to tell us how awful they were. And that might surprise you, but all through the Bible, there are funny, made-up names for certain people, while most others have real names. For example, the names of the four kings are all real, and we can find names just like them in cuneiform tablets. But other names? How can I describe this? Have you ever seen Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, where the dwarves all have funny names that suit their personality? Sneezy's always sneezing, grumpy's always grumpy, and bashful is very shy. Now, those obviously aren't the names their mothers would have given them, and especially dopey because that's just rude. Those are more like nicknames. Well, the five kings have names like that, too. King Bera's name means evil, and King Bersh's name means wicked. Shinab means the father of lies. And Shemeber means something like name of the strong. The last king, he didn't even have a name. And this would have all sounded like a big joke to the original audience when Moses told the story to the children of Israel in the wilderness. They're just like the five dwarves, only their names are evil, wicked, liar, powerful, and nobody. When the people heard this because they knew the story of what would happen to these five cities later, they would have laughed. These cities were so terrible and so dangerous that God would destroy them to keep them from hurting the people around them. They did cruel and shameful things to the strangers who would visit that I don't even want to talk about. 
Sometimes in the Bible, when God doesn't even want them to be remembered, we will never know their real names. We'll just get a fake name that describes them. Right now, God is telling us that these kings can't be trusted and that although they may be powerful compared to the rest of the land of Canaan and all the people that they hurt, there is always a bigger bully. So we will never know their names, but their names aren't important. When Moses told them the story, what he did instead was tell us everything we needed to know about them with their nicknames. During their lives, people were scared and terrorized by them, but as Qui-Gon Jinn said, there's always a bigger fish. And that's an important thing to know because it's still true now and always will be. In this world, there will always be bullies and criminals and liars and all those sorts of things. But they aren't the biggest people on the block. God is always bigger and he is not blind. He sees everything. And although he allows people to do what they choose, no one is ever really getting away with anything, even when it seems like they're winning. And people ask all the time, and even in the Bible, why God allows people to be so evil. And it's a hard thing to deal with. If he is so good, then why is there so much bad in the world? Grown-ups have been arguing and debating and complaining about that for years. They call that question of how the world can be full of bad things if God is good, theodicy. Why does God allow people like Hitler or members of the Ku Klux Klan or con artists and bullies to hurt people? Why does he allow them to even be born? I mean, that seems like what I would do if I was God, but then if I was God, I might just start killing anyone who doesn't use their turn signals on the freeway or who tells a particularly appalling dad joke. And you know what I'm talking about with those terrible dad jokes. And the thing is that God does love us. He doesn't want us to hurt each other. And he cares very deeply and especially for the people who are being hurt. He sees it and he doesn't like it one bit. Sometimes he steps in and puts a stop to it in ways that seem like a coincidence. But he doesn't control people. He isn't causing people to behave badly or to hurt us. But without being able to choose to do right, instead of doing wrong, none of us would really be alive. Choosing good means nothing if we can't choose to do bad. I don't want to be a robot just watching my life from inside my brain and unable to choose what I do. And neither would you. That would be a terrible way to live. And because God doesn't control the people who act in evil ways, we can trust him not to trick us, use us, and control us. If you choose to do something wonderful, it's because you made the right choice. And you chose to be like Jesus. When we choose to do bad things when we can do something good instead, we are being more like Satan. That's why Jesus told his disciples to follow him so they could show the world what he's like once he was gone. And we all have that choice, because God loves us too much to force us to do anything. We can choose to be like Jesus, and even when it's hard, or we can choose to be like Satan. Who we act more like shows the world what we really believe and who our king really is. The kings in the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela were very evil. And the people in those cities acted just like their kings. 
which is why God told his people to make sure their leaders were good people. When visitors came, the citizens of those five cities ganged up and did horrible things to hurt them and shame them. So it's no surprise that they went back on their agreement with the Big Cheese. They were evil, violent liars, and very dangerous. And it's very shocking with all we know about them now, and we'll find out later in chapters 18 and 19 that Lot felt it was okay to live there and raise his family in a place like that. He was probably able to do good business selling animals and milk and cheese to them, and so maybe they treated him well because they needed him. But Lot wasn't blind. He knew what was going on, and he stayed there anyway. I love you. I'm praying for you. I want you to think about what happens when we hang around people who may be nice to us, but are terrible to others, and how we think God feels about that.